everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. We are perhaps the only philosophy podcast in existence with the dubious distinction of having 100 episodes and not a single one of them devoted to Plato. Today, we will rectify that. And although perhaps we should have gotten around to it sooner, I think it stands as a testament to the idiosyncratic way we produce a philosophy show. It may not be ideal to some, but does the ideal philosophy podcast exist at all? Plato may have a thing or two to say about that. <laughs> what is the form of an idea? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Plato, um, you know, obviously uh, one of, if not the titan of Western philosophy. Um, and we, we talk about Plato all the time on the show. Well, sure, yeah. Um, but if you, if you go through iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and uh, you search for a philosophy podcast and then you kind of dip in and see what their show titles, you don't even have to scroll. Within the, within the first three or five episodes that pop up, you'll see Plato, you know? Um, so, and it, because it's, I'd say it's a starting point, but there were pre-Socratic philosophers. There's Parmenides and Heraclitus and these, these people who, yes. people have always been thinking since they've had the luxury to sit and think, mm-hmm. which, you know, as that's general, which, we, which we do on Saturday mornings. <laughs> <We have laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's sort of a fascinating epoch to me or era is this, I, this idea of when did that occur? Like when did, when did humans finally sit down and, and start thinking, huh? You know, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't have to, I don't have to worry about what I'm going to eat or where I'm going to sleep or how I'm going to protect myself for five minutes. So, I'm going to look at the stars and, hey, that looks like something. You know, when when yeah. does that happen? It's probably the beginning of beginning of recorded history, really, uh, in I would some guess, regards. Yeah. <laughs> so, but but Plato um, really, really changed things, um, changed the whole course of Western thought. So, who was Plato? The interesting thing about Plato is that he, that he is in this center of this triumvirate. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And, and Socrates was Plato's teacher. Socrates, as we said before, never wrote anything. And um, Plato was one of many of Socrates' students, or Socrates' students. And then, and then Aristotle was one of many of, of Plato's students. But somehow it all focuses down on, on Plato because, I think, Socrates was his method, his approach. He didn't have a school. He didn't have a curriculum. He was just a gad about wandering around asking questions and poking at people with, with intent, but still. And, and Plato uh, formed a school with a curriculum, um, insisted that people know mathematics before they started with him. So already we got prerequisites <laughs> at, at that point. That was nothing like Socrates. And, and Plato, unlike Socrates, was trying to seemingly, l- looking at his work, was trying to form a connected systemic approach to the world, to thinking about the world, to piecing together everything that we can know with it, with an ordered set of questions that each one is dependent on the previous one in order to, 
Now that's Socratic, but but in the sense of the broadness of the questions, uh, that was new. Yeah, I, I, it's fascinating to to look at these guys and then piece together their their early lives because um, Socrates they really it probably couldn't be more different than Socrates and Plato when you look yeah. at when you look at them. Socrates is kind of an ugly guy, um, uh, sort of unpleasant. Uh, you know, and <laughs> Plato's an athlete. <laughs> yeah, Plato, you know, a wrestler, an athlete, came from a kind of an aristocratic, you know, like a, a family of of you know notoriety. And um, yeah, it's it, it's funny to think how they how sort they of reminds me of some and, days at work back in the day for me. <laughs> you had these young, sharp people come from all walks of life, but but well, here you are saying. Well, I'm a crotchety uh, middle-aged guy. Well, what can I do for you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and 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 we know less about Plato than we think. And this is, and I think you've probably stumbled across this in in, in the readings that you've you've done. But Plato, uh, Plato may not even been anything other than a pseudonym. Uh, Plato and a word Platon. Platon means broad. And it's, there's a lot of speculation that it was just a nickname <laughs> that broad because a, he apparently was broad of shoulders and quite a wrestler and an athlete and broad because of all of the different topics that he tried to, to pull together. So I think it, I, I think the speculation is his name might have been Aristocles. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, how would life have been different if we talked about that? We didn't have Plato to talk about. Yeah. It's, it's like too close to Aristotle. I mean, I don't know if people wouldn't have been able to differentiate. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, Plato, and he lived a good long life too. 71, I think. Yeah, I think that they 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 think it's about 80 years, um, but anywhere between 75 and 84. Um, and well-traveled, you know, he went, he went a, you know, a, he was walking around the Middle East quite a bit, or, you know, around the... Favored the city of Syracuse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's kind of the background. Um, and Plato himself, he wasn't, he, despite the uh, the contrast between him and Socrates, Plato didn't really care for writing stuff down either. No, um, according to some of their own writings, not he, at first. Um, he was even known to make statements saying things like, um, you know, that he wouldn't actually write down any thoughts of value. Because um, it would it would expose those thoughts to undue criticism. You know, he yes. if he was going to actually say something of meaning, he wanted to say it in person, so he had a chance to um, have a dialogue with somebody and and form a rebuttal to whatever things they might say against him. Yep, and this forms a, an umbilicus to the other end of the conversation that we're having, wherever we get to with it. That. Uh, there was a thing called the Agrafa Dogmata, which were said to be the, the principles that Plato was teaching toward the end that were not written down, that only the insiders could know. But the trouble is that becomes almost like a conspiracy theory, and the and and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that was influenced by some of his closer friends and fellow teachers and students. So. Yeah, he, he he like anyone can be inconsistent. Yeah, right. yeah, writing is an evil. Never write things down. Right, but I'm writing all of this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's pretty interesting. 
So we've kind of talked about it. There's what do we know about Plato's early life? So do we know much of anything? Really, not nearly as much as one would expect. I think there there are details, but I I hesitate to try to uh, derive a person's philosophy from too much concentration on biographical details. Uh, just as just as much as with uh, a writer, and Plato started out being much more literary than than philosophical. Really, he didn't seem to take philosophy as focused seriously until Socrates was executed. Uh, so he's a literary person, but as, but as a child, there's just all kinds of legends woven around him. And whenever you get someone that stories are being told about then it's really hard to break through and find what he was one of the seven sages oh, right okay and when he's born bees honeybees came and landed on his lips uh which was a sign from the gods that he was going to say sweet and delicious things all of his life and yeah you know, and i think that he was even like supposed to be descended from a god on his dad's side or something yes, from Poseidon or something, yes so. and 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 related to the the most important Athenian rulers and and and, and who, yeah, I think it's really interesting because from a psychological standpoint, right? I think that it's an it's a hard line to to walk, and I think that you you sort of hit the nail on the head there. If we're talking about characters that we don't know much about their early lives, then I we should definitely approach it with caution. I think that the more we know about somebody's early life, the more we can start to draw some connections. Oh, yeah. But you can still, it's still very individualistic. You see people who will grow up in, who can be siblings in the same circumstance and take wildly different life paths and have wildly different worldviews. Sure. So, I mean, the, the history, the biography is not irrelevant. And I don't mean to suggest that at all. And the more one knows. But, but we have to keep in mind, too, that we're in a time when no matter how much one knows about the biography of a figure, People cherry pick whether they want to believe it or not, even if it's documentable, uh, and and so biography becomes froth, and and that's dangerous too. Um, so it's it's right to try to figure out about Plato, and many minds better than I have if I figured out some things about it. But but the general sense for what we're talking about is he really didn't talk about himself much. He's the kind of teacher who didn't tell you about his life every day. He was from an aristocratic family, whatever that means back at that time. So there was some wealth, but not much else. Yeah. Yeah. So what was Plato's relationship with Socrates? We know he was a student. Um, What sort of, you know, through the writings that he had, how do we see them um, together? He's... He seemed to very much honor his teacher and to care about him. Um, they, of course, because it was a healthy teacher-student relationship, uh, diverged plentifully <laughs> on on some things, and and partly because of Socrates' execution and a number of other factors contributing to it, uh, Plato absolutely rejected the idea of democracy. And, you know, when I was very young, I thought, and then when I read The Republic, and we'll get to that and talk about that, but I, but I thought, well, here's a, you know, because I was raised in an ideological fashion where anybody's going to trash democracy. Well, 
I, and I've been rereading the Republic and of late. And he was right about a lot of things, you know, that I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to allow myself to realize when I was 20 something. Yeah. Um, and so he's, he's a, he's a good teacher in that, in his writings. But his relationship with Socrates was, was different significantly in how he viewed what education should be. I would love to have been, you know, I don't want to watch the Titanic. I don't want to see all these conflagrations in history. If I could travel in time to sit in on a class, but it'd have to be the right one because it's probably some days when Plato said nothing. And <laughs> but to sit in on a class where, where Plato was having a discussion with Socrates to see how it went. Um, because the, the dialogues of Socrates that Plato wrote, partly perhaps as homage to or trying to represent the kind of ways that Socrates taught. Um, the fact that it's complicated because the fact that Plato was writing these things, it wasn't just to uh, applaud his teacher. It was that he found that it could reach people. And I think that that's what he probably took away from Plato or Socrates more than I, I would say maybe perhaps more than anything else, which, which was that you don't keep uh, philosophy in specialized little corners. You know, we were talking about specializations and things uh, last week we had before, but you don't keep it in the ivory tower, so to speak, even though it didn't exist then. Uh, you try to reach as many people reasonably as you can. Socrates was doing that in his own way. Um, and I think Plato continued that. Yeah, and that's that's the point I was trying to make in the introduction too about our show. Is you know, um, you know, there's plenty of great philosophy podcasts. I've listened to to a lot of them, yes. um, but I think that you know, if you know, there's something. Uh, it's like a lecture, or it's like you know, there's a component to it that is very formalized mm -hmm. um, in a lot of cases. So the fact that we made it 100 episodes and haven't dedicated a podcast to Plato, um, that tells you that we are, we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to reach a broad audience, right? Mm -hmm. um, we definitely want to look at specific philosophers or specific um, works that have been done. Um, but we also understand that a philosopher might be Plato, um, but also that every common person, a filmmaker or a musician or a laborer, yeah, the in, in people on the street, philosophy. everybody is a philosopher, right? Yeah. So everybody's a philosopher. Um, most of them have some pretty interesting things to say. And how does that integrate with reality as we know it, if it exists? <laughs> <laughs> We've been there. <laughs> All of these big questions, right? Yeah. So yeah, it is interesting to, to think about well, what would Plato, you know, if you could have been a fly on the wall with Plato and Socrates, yeah. you know, what it would have been like, you know, would there come a point where they disagree and, and Socrates would just keep Socratically questioning him and Plato at some point would accuse him of, of, of you know, of trying to work his way around the or issue. He or he ignores him and stops talking to him altogether for yeah. a while. I don't, and, and, and Plato and Aristotle, Plato's student Aristotle, Aristotle finally came, Aristotle was a very strong student. He finally came to a very large divergence from his teacher. But, but that's, that's how it's supposed to be. I'll take a little side jump because we go to Star Wars sometimes. You don't want a divergence from your teacher to end up uh, destroying 
parts of the universe. <laughs> but you have to, as a teacher, you want your students to come to the place as, as however they can and however quickly they can or in whatever ways they will. You want, you want, you need to acknowledge and embrace that they're not, you're not there to indoctrinate them. And, and most teachers know this and don't, and don't do an indoctrination. You're there to fire up the brain cells. You're there to say, look, the world's a lot bigger than you think and a lot more complicated. And there are ideas out there you would never have touched before. Let's talk about those mm-hmm. in writing and orally and so on. But you expect your fine students to go out on doing their own thing. Yeah. The, the power of thought is in its diversity. Yeah. Without the diversity of thought, you're going to run up against walls and concepts and theories, and you're not going to know how to go around them. The history of philosophy, the history of science, the history of writing, everything is, is people, you know, being well read and looking at the things that have come before them and then either coming off on, on variations of things that solve problems with an initial concept or varying to such an extent that they're developing a new theory or a new way of approaching something and yep. progress is made. Yep. And even in philosophy, uh, you know, in, uh, essentially a field that's dedicated to questions that are unknowable, progress can still be made just by the, the sheer depth and, and, you know, broadness of the field that is developed over the course of history. If you look at, you know, starting with the, the pre-Socratics and going up, you know, through human Kant and all these guys, a lot of them, you know, they're, they're looking at the same problems, but they're looking at it in a different way. And then you can draw on the whole body of knowledge about what have different people said about consciousness or about ethics or about these different issues. And there's a wealth of information you can draw on. So even if the question isn't answerable, it gets you thinking about it in a number of different ways. And then you come up with your own approaches. And one of the ways that that happens, and I think it's what, I think it's what Socrates and Plato were doing in their own ways is something that came to have a terminology in the late seventies, early 1980s when I encountered it and loved it, which was uh, called teaching the conflicts. And essentially it was a pedagogical methodology, teaching methodology that, that emphasized teaching students where people clash within a field. Because that's what's going to wake people up and say, now, can you imagine that being done in our schools today with any kind of support? Teach collision of ideas. Now no, we just burn the books. Then. No, burn the books. No, no, <laughs> teach collision of ideas. No, we can't talk about that. That's, that's verboten. Teaching conflict real helps students realize that nobody has the ultimate answer about everything and that very fine educated people with, with virtuous motives end up whacking into each other over the ideas and their approaches to them, but they somehow find a way to make that contribute to a field. And the knowledge grows in messy, um, difficult ways. And I think that that's what these two were, were doing. I, I, and I, and I think that, that so, so Socrates may have um, had arguments <laughs> with Plato probably did. I would love to have, Seeing those, we see Socrates doing this with other people and all the, the Mino and the Phaedo and all the, the different dialogues. Would have been nice to see it with Plato, right? Yeah. The Plato. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Socrates was a, uh, you know, a verbal pugilist, whereas I, <laughs> I don't know that Plato was. I don't know if there's anything to indicate that he was much of a debater or. And there's, I, I don't know that, but I do know that one of the follow up still with the question that you would ask, one of the essential differences is that the, the, the Socrates, Socrates is, is, his method ends at what's called a aporia, which is often where we end up, which is to say, well, we haven't really drawn many conclusions. Sometimes he goes more into this, the negative, um, all the things that we, that we don't know. Plato wanted, uh, structured answers. Hmm. And I think that's where they diverged. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's it's interesting. I'm reading a, a philosophy book for my class currently. And the author, that's what he kind of stresses, you know, going all the way from Plato up through up through uh Kant, even even to non-philosophers, but but people with philosophical ideas like Freud or Darwin. And um saying, you know, really, if you boil it down, the history of philosophy is an unending battle between skeptics and rationalists, hmm. right? People who People who are saying, essentially, in some way or another, we can't ever really know anything. And other people that are saying, you know, if I think if we just take a, you know, if we, we can reason it out, we can know some things, right? Yep. And that is, that's, that is the big debate of philosophy that the humans, you know, it doesn't matter what topic you're looking at, whether it's uh, metaphysical or, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's the entire field of epistemology, but on, you know, ontological, ethical, Mm -hmm. um, all these fields, can we, can we actually come to, to know some things or is it beyond our, our grasp, you know? And, and, and I think that, that the optimistic, well, I think you and I are on that, that path. Well, when we grapple, we come to some things hmm. it, it, we try. So Plato had formed a school, an academy, okay, but it lasted 800 years. Hmm. And, and, I remember one of my uh, professors talking about, and do you think that the school had the same curriculum that whole time? Oh, of course not. So like eight, eight years roughly after Plato died, uh, skepticism became the curriculum <laughs> of, and then there was new Neoplatonism and middle Platonism and all the way 800 years. The only thing that shut down the school was uh, Emperor Justinian, Roman Emperor, who shut it down because it was pagan learning and not Christian, therefore was not worthy of being talked about. <laughs> so, you know, I can't help but think about these things as we look at. Uh, I mean, and that—that's usually the end of a lot of these institutes or philosophers themselves is um, war or politics or in some Theocracy, way or fashion. something yeah 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 i think i mentioned it before as a kid i was you know a, a small child my mom bought me a just a thin book about archimedes and mm. his his life you know and they had these wonderfully uh you know illustrative cartoons written in a, a you know a greek or sort of style and, and things and and i remember you know at the end it tells a story about how he dies you know which we're not sure you know if it's exactly true or not but right. I started thinking, oh man, what a, this is such a shame, you know, and he was old. He lived to be quite old, um, but, you know, just a soldier, you know, you know, 
coming in from an, an enemy country. Hey, listen, you can't stop drawing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, we got to talk to you about something. Then you know, killing him. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that just seems to be. You know, you look through history. There's a lot of there's a lot of things that end that way. That it's it seems kind of unfortunate. Yeah. So <laughs> this is going to be a, a trick question, but what sort of topics did Plato philosophize about? Everything. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you knew you you knew where we were going with that. All right. Here are the. I I went back through some sources. I thought I anticipated you. All right. Here are some of his questions. What is the right kind of life and the best kind of society? What is knowledge and how do we get it? What is the fundamental nature of reality? Of A.C. Grayling, a marvelous philosopher and writer who also takes philosophy to individual to the everyday level, um, he, he presents these questions, and he and then and points out that there's an order to answer the first: what is the right kind of life and the best kind of society? You need to answer the second: what is knowledge and how do we get it? Because unless you know what knowledge is, how do you know how to use knowledge to make the right kind of society? And and to answer the second question about knowledge, you need to answer the third, which is what is the fundamental nature of reality? And so this is what Plato was putting it all together. Hmm. Not just bits and pieces of conversations, or or in the manner of so many marvelous philosophers, the pre-Socratics and, and the people of the time who, who wrote treatises, uh, very formal uh, arguments. Uh, investigating a question, but they were written for aristocracy. They were, they were written for not ordinary readers. And Plato busted that. He, he changed that. Yeah. And that's an interesting, um, way of laying it out that he has there because essentially, if you look at it, he's saying, okay, well, you need, you need metaphysics and then you need epistemology and then you need ontology. Mm -hmm. Um, and even saying it in that sort of order is, I'm, I'm assuming for the time was sort of a novel thing. It was, yeah, at that point, you know, and and even today, there's some people that that try to say, well, you, you know, you need to understand an ontology before you can know anything epistemically, right? Like, well, if you don't know what the nature of of being is, then how mm -hmm. are you going to come to any knowledge, right? Yeah. So this is still a debate that, that is happening to to this day, and a lot of this emerges again when Socrates. Uh, Socrates, Socrates is executed for uh, the rough paraphrase is for corrupting the youth of Athens. Hmm. Plato was one of those youths, and and Plato was, I think, twenty seven or twenty eight when his master teacher was executed, and Plato had been writing well, a little bit of dialogue, but but. Uh, Poetry, he'd been writing in a literary fashion. It wasn't purely philosophical. Upon Plato's or Socrates' execution, you know, he, he moved into these dialogues and particularly the Republic, which is presenting how a, how a government should work because for him it wasn't working. It's yeah. clearly. Not. Yeah, some speculative history here. Do you? How do you think things would have been different if, if Socrates wasn't executed? That's a fascinating question. 
it's one of those what ifs, those multiverse yeah. things. I, I, I think that as he got older, Plato would have still gone to, uh, would have developed the Republic and some of his metaphors or myths, uh, structures, because he didn't think that the government of Athens was anything other than a wash. Uh, they had lost to Sparta in the Peloponnesian War. <laughs> People see movies about that, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. uh, and, and he thought that it was because of the weakness of the idea of democracy. And he was called to uh, mentor, advise, counsel one of his other students who was, uh, a, his own students, Plato's students, who, who was, uh, in charge of the city of Syracuse. And he went there a number of times to consult, to try to help them shape themselves. But that, but that leader, for all kinds of reasons, didn't seem to be up to the application of the ideas. And the ideas were um, rather utopian. And so you can't put a utopia in place. So that, that collapsed too. So, but I think that stuff would have happened whether Socrates had been executed or died falling and breaking his hip along walking along the road somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it is interesting. You see these, these events and it's hard to say throughout history how they change things, right? It seems, it seems that that Socrates death would have a big, especially you know plato if he'd been pretty literary up to that point and then seeing somebody be executed for philosophizing Mm -hmm. you know it it seems like that you know wow that would really bring bring things into perspective a little bit yeah um makes him an activist yeah in a a way but at the same time it's not you know i think that you're right you know the the course of events right nobody is Nobody is going to be the student. He's not going to be the Padawan learner his whole life, right? If Qui-Gon Jinn doesn't get killed by Darth Maul, it's not like Obi-Wan's just going to continue to be a student his whole life, right? He's, he's, at some point, he's going to be a Jedi master. He's going to do his own thing. I think it's the same with Plato. But yeah, how would the ideas have been different? Would they have been, you know, how would they have been changed? It's a wonderful question. And that's, that's worthy speculation. And, you know, it is interesting, his, his views on democracy, because I think, like you said, I think a lot of listeners in the U.S. would, are a little cringing a little bit thinking about, Oh, democracy is a bad thing. But the <laughs> example that, that gets brought up is, well, you know, he, he preferred a bad tyrant to a bad democracy because a bad tyrant, you can blame all of the country's issues on that one person. You can say, this guy's making bad decisions. He's a bad person. If we remove him, things can turn but around. But he said that democracy, which is, he had this whole, he had this whole array. From best to worst. Mm-hmm. Democracy is the worst, and democracy is what leads to tyrants. Right. That's his argument. So it's not that the democracy or tyranny, it's that uh, if you have democracy for any length of time, you're going to have a strong man who comes in and says, I can fix this, but you're going to have to, I, but I have to be able to stay as long as I need to stay, and, and I won't acknowledge your rules, and I'm going to. And I'm going to fix this all. Usually fixing it all means executing a whole bunch of people and making sure that he gets a lot of attention. Yeah, the illustration is kind of like a, a, a ship, right? 
if you have a bad tyrant, it's like having a bad captain. You could have you'd have plenty of good crew, but if the captain's bad, the ship is bad. But if you have a bad democracy, right, no mutiny is going to fix that. If everybody is, if everybody on the ship is bad, then yeah. you're you're in a hopeless situation. Yeah, and for and, and for Plato, and, and because I have to be honest about this, I have to be because I'm not going to. Uh, democracy, by its very nature, was bad. When you have the populace. Um, well, what did he say? When you have the populace, he goes through, okay, we have aristocracy, which didn't mean what we use aristocracy to mean now, that you had wealth, you gave it to your family, your family, well, it's just the same people in charge of it. It was, it was what we mean by meritocracy. You have to prove yourself in order, in, 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 for, for his ideal republic, and remember the United States was Supposedly a democratic republic. That's like for Plato putting two opposite ideas together, <laughs> which was what the founders were doing. They were cherry picking and putting stuff. You know, what a mess. <laughs> but all right. So, so a meritocracy says that, that philosopher kings, these are people who have to be, have the, the virtue, the intellect and the distancing and not be con- concerned about wealth or anything. They're essentially monks who run things because they don't have they can be indifferent uh to the things that would subvert people well that's ideal that's that's utopian but then you have if that doesn't work maybe you have an epist- epistocracy i'd forgotten that term i was going through notes which is a rule by experts hmm. so that's pretty good you listen to people who are expert in things, you're probably going to make some, but if that, but that can degenerate into democracy. Democracy is the rule by those who have property, who want honor, status, and glory, hmm. uh, who have ambition, which is a great corrupter. And then democracy devolves into oligarchy or plutocracy. So a few people are running the whole show. They're Timocrats. They want honor, they want money, and they want to consolidate power. And that divert, <laughs> devolves into democracy, the demos, the, the, the populist, uh, who the, the rich enjoy freedom and their wealth buys their freedom. The people rise up against that and say everyone gets to claim the right to make or break laws. Nobody has to adhere to any laws that they don't want to. Uh, freedom becomes licensed to break things, leads to anarchy, and then your tyrant comes along and takes care of things. This is instructive right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it is interesting, these terms. What was the one that he had for, for the landowners? What was that? Uh, uh, the landowners, the democracy. So the democracy. It's interesting to think, well, what's... What an is, oligarch consolidated. Yeah, what but, is the difference between an oligarchy and a democracy? Because it seems like... If you have an oligarchy, the people who are who are sort of the few people that are running things, there's a very good chance they're probably the landowners, right? Well, to be Marxist about it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, let's put Marx and Plato together. Somebody probably has. Um, the difference is that the Timocrats are not all wealthy landowners. They're just people who have a lot of ambition, who seek uh, honor and glory. So it can be the military folks. Hmm. It can be... Uh, people, the experts, anybody who uh, can get the authority 
is there a unifying um, objective? Are, is an oligarchy unified in some way, whereas uh, the others are kind of out for themselves, or is, is everybody out for themselves regardless? Well, of that well, sort of way? Uh, Plato, in, you know, in the in the Republic, he seems to suggest that the only way to keep everybody from being out for themselves is to have balance and harmony. And the only way to have balance and harmony is to develop the best characteristics, but you're going to have three orders of people. You're going to have the, what, what we might call the rulers, but that's, that's too, um, I think that's, that's too simplistic, the guardians. And now we're starting thinking about the watchmen, right? <laughs> that, that the guardians are the people with wisdom, temperance, just, justice, courage, athleticism, no private property, and no tempting or temptation to accumulate. They eat with moderation. They don't stack up a bunch of stuff that they don't uh, need. And they're concentrating on the state. And then you have the, the warriors. And these are the courageous folks who may also have justice, athleticism, and everything else, but they're not so interested in being distanced. And so they're going to make the, the, they're going to lead elements of the society, but according to a temperate and balanced harmony with the guardians. And then there's the rest, hmm. who also are supposed to be temperate, hmm. but don't have as, as significant roles in, in leadership terms, but still have to maintain that temperance, which is a duty, a deontological thing, so that the whole system works. Hmm. And if your whole system <laughs> revolves around temperance, then humanity has a very slim chance. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah. and, and Plato knew this. I think he was... I think, it, uh, you know, you reread, and, and of course it's translated and um, marvelously translated in many ways, but you, you reread it and you say, yeah, of course he was human. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it's just like any, anyone else. And of course he had to know that this wasn't ultimately completely achievable, but he also, like any of us who see a system that just seems to be wrecking itself, so, so there's got to be something better. We've got to work towards something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that there's a value to that. I think that, that some people, I mean, kind of like we did, we'll laugh at it, right? Oh, well, you know, people can't be temperate, but there, there's ways of doing it. Um, you know, there, you can develop programs that help people with things. And of and, course and people these, can be temperate. I yeah, mean, they, yeah. they, 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 you don't have a drink every night. You have a drink once a week mm -hmm. or, or if you, if you're, or if, but if you're alcoholic, you, you don't. And, and if you eat, but you don't eat to excess, like the Romans vomiting into trough, you eat what you need. Right. And I think that the government can play a, a role in helping people with that way, healthcare services and, and other, other factions. And you're starting to see that a little bit more in the U.S. than you did before, whereas it was just every, every man for himself. You're starting to see a little bit more. Um, and technology's helped in that way. Um, there's apps that will help you keep from overeating or making sure that you're exercising right. or doing these things. And it's, and some of them are being provided, you know, for free and it's a good way of, of, you know, there's a, there's a long way that we could continue to go with it, but, um, it's a good start, but yeah, getting back to the, so do you think that in Plato's mind, democracy and anarchy is where does he draw one, the line? One step them? away from each other. Yeah. Uh, one is, in, it's inevitable that one leads to the other. Hmm. 
for him because because the moment you have the populace um he says uh, when the the crux point i think in rereading all this is that when you come to the place where people decide which laws for whatever nation state it is he was talking about city states he's not talking he didn't know what we are but when you have people who pick and choose which laws they will obey and then you have other people say no you got to obey this law because i say you have to obey this law well, i'm not going to obey that law well i'm not going to obey that law then you've come to anarchy we we are very very essentially close to that in this country. I think um, I will not comply. That applies to many of us on various uh, in various political um, areas, um, and it's a dangerous place. Yeah. So we've talked about sort of some of the ideas on politics and stuff. What other ideas is Plato most known for? Well, using stories <laughs> to reach people you know not treatises but, but i mean think about if you have you have you read any of the dialogues yeah is, right uh, i know you have but recently you, you read them and you say this was ordinary reading for people <laughs> 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 not in the 21st century <laughs> um but but you you read the dialogues and you, and you realize that, I mean, there's a bit of a setup for both. Who are these people talking? You're sort of coming into the middle of a situation where a conversation has been happening as if you're walking into a room. And so it's really interesting and down to earth. He does that. But then as he's doing that, he also tells uh, stories, sometimes stories that he has made up, sometimes stories that are ancient uh, myths of one kind or another. And he uses those as models. He's really the first one to use those stories as models, metaphors, really. Mm. Uh, so the ring of Gyges or the, or the charioteer. Now I, I was thinking today, driving over here. Well, you know, I, I wouldn't put reason in the cart. I think he had that wrong. I, the charioteer story is that, that, well, Plato says that the soul um, is made up of a tripartite, made up of three parts. There, there's reason. There's uh, spirit and appetite. Uh, I think. Appetite, yeah, yeah. And and so think of it as a charioteer. Reason is the in the chariot driver's position, and there are two horses: appetite and spirit. And appetite is what we would call on Maslow's scale, you know, shelter, sex, food, <laughs> you know, keeping warm, that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so the horse is going to fly low and <laughs> low to the ground. It's going to be, a, but of course it's a flying horse. <laughs> and, and, and then the other one is spirit, which is rising toward uh, something large, trying to take something in, trying to, your emotions are at play, trying to take something that you're feeling and doing something with it. And reason has to pull those two horses together if the chariot's going to get anywhere. Now that's a really cool metaphor. Um, a it's story. Almost, it's almost id ego and super ego, you know, yeah. in a long ways before it happened, isn't it? Yeah. And and so then you say whatever else I think about Plato, my God, this this person was thinking about mm. things that became modern in in the 1900s, right? Um. 
So they said, or the ring of Gyges, what, how, how does a person, what happens when you get an, it's, it's again, like I said another time, Tolkien, who was a classic scholar and a medieval scholar, he, he, he took the element of this and he worked it his own way. The ring of Gyges is a ring of invisibility. Uh, if you put that ring of invisibility on too often, what, if any way, does it affect your moral character? And well, you know, some guy just puts the thing on, and pretty soon, guy just is sneaking into people's rooms, looking at things that he shouldn't be looking at, and and it, it's a it's a much more complicated tale. But would guy just have been would would the person any person wearing that ring have been the same person if they didn't put that ring on? And having the power, so it's about power. If you have, and so that, and then it takes me over to you know people who always poo poo the idea of superhero stories. We've had enough of them. What of okay, okay, but. If you look underneath, some of them are trash and some aren't. If you look underneath it, it's about power. We all have power mm. of one kind or another, not superpowers, but we have, we have power over individuals um, by dint of authority of what we've worked on the game, whatever it happens to be. How do we use it? And do we use it appropriately? And do we not even think about it anymore? And that's dangerous too. Yeah, and so Plato was thinking about these, like we said, it is Platon, his nickname, yeah, broad. Yeah, broad. You know, he's thinking about it not just in not just power in regards to how it shapes an individual, but how it shapes an entire society in the yeah. Republic. So he certainly was thinking about it across across some um, you know context. Um, what other ideas is what other things is he is he sort of known for primarily? Um, well. The specifics of the so- Socratic dialogues. Let's see, some things up here. Um, um, he's one could say Plato invented Atlantis. <laughs> he refers to you know we've all heard the story of the island. That, that well, I don't know if they had all heard that story or that was just written in as, as the fiction, and and that he invented it. But that's that's taking pe- people down a rabbit hole. For- yeah Millennial. <laughs> yeah that's the thing is i'm you know i'm so curious about plato because when you when you read the dialogues right there are yeah. these enormous long things and you go if this was a real conversation right yeah it would be impossible to remember all of the things that went back and forth and it would also probably be impossible to write it all down as it was happening so it almost makes you wonder like did these conversations happen or were these hypothetical things that he was using to demonstrate a point that he had thought of? You know, he fictionalized, quite probably, because most of us do. Even if we write a memoir, we are fictionalizing our narrative. We're trying to remember something. I mean, even if you go to sacred texts, the, the, the Gospels were not written, for the most part, by the men whose names are on. You know, and so somebody who's 80 remembering a conversation from 20 years mm-hmm. when it was 20 or somebody a hundred years after that conversation happened, you know that it's not going to be <laughs> chapter and verse word for word. Yeah. And so, you know, we've talked about in the past how philosophy is the intersection of, of sort of science and art, right? Yeah. And you see that happening. I mean, I, I think that, you know, based off of the purely fictional, um, scenarios that Plato presented, you know, uh, sort of combined with the uh, biographical, you know, or the 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 
supposedly uh, factual things he documented, mm. or you look at, at John Paul Sartre, these other people that they used philosophy in a way, in an artistic way, right, to to get across points of uh, of value of that are very big. You know, it's kind of kind of interesting. I mean, in the, the the chariot is called the myth of Phaeton. And for various reasons, there's a young man who has to be allowed to fly the sun god's chariot, Helios, and he, uh, for a day. And this is where he's deriving those three ego, superego things that we call it now. But what happens is that the young man takes the chariot so close to earth that he burns the earth, he scorches the earth. There's, there's, and and so the story is about, is, along with other things, about how the misapplication of knowledge or the hubris that you've learned everything and can handle something immediately can lead to great devastation. Hmm. Yeah, man, it's fascinating. Um, you want to talk about uh, the Platonic ideals a little bit? Yeah. I didn't go to that initially because I think that's probably the most off-putting for, yeah, I, for people. I think it's it's probably the thing that he's. It might be the thing he's most known for, but it's. Yeah. Um, so it's it's good to cover. But okay, so he had so many other interesting things about his philosophy. The interesting thing is that before I start, I just say this: Plato was considered a realist. <laughs> okay, but he said that there's uh, there are two realms: the realm of being and the realm of becoming. Well, and other, other philosophers down the line who wrote, wrote books, being and becoming, on being and so on. Um, and the realm of, of being is a static realm in which there are forms and the for, forms are of every, uh, everything almost. And then the almost is the part where it all starts to fall apart after Plato is, Plato even challenged himself on it. But let's say, so there's a form of tree. There's the perfect ultimate tree in this realm. And the form of goodness and the form of, this, of properties and values and so on. Unchanging. But that form participates with, interacts with, or is copied into. And people have challenged this word because those are different things too. Uh, into the life we know, the realm of, of becoming. So we don't have a perfect tree. We have a tree that has elements of perfect tree. We can be perfectly good, but we try to work at it and, and so on. But that ultimately the soul comes from the realm of being. It comes into the world and forgets what it knew in the realm of being. And so life is a process of unforgetting. Hmm. Education is a process of unforgetting. Anamnesis. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. It's, you know, so you're working hard at unforgetting the things that you knew in a different life, in, in a perfect life. And if you work really hard at it, you may actually live a better life in this world before your soul goes back to the realm of being. Yeah, so this is... um. You know, it's a philosophy again about how we come to to know things, right? So, and yeah. Plato has sort of a, a strange take on it, right? Because it's not like tabula rasa, right? We can all 
it, that sort of makes sense, right? You come into the world and you're just a blank slate and then you learn stuff. Um, and there's other people who, you know, talk about, okay, well, you have some things that it's a nature nurture kind of argument. Yes. But yes. Plato almost goes beyond nature or nurture into um, sort of a, a supernatural. Yeah. Kind of it's a, one could say it's a mystic, a, a spiritual. Um, he didn't make it the realm of gods, which I, I think is very interesting. Hmm. Um, and at the, toward the end of his work, back to that um, agrafa dogmata, the principles that nobody writes down, he he was. But people have written about it for a long time. <laughs> it's it's uh, he had he re- modified this or explained it further to this extent that the realm of being essentially is that reality is oneness, a totality. And the realm of becoming is a place where dyads function. Um, and so dyads are, by the implication of the name, are, are oppositions of excess and want, um, courage and cowardice, um, you know, any, pick any collision that you want to, the ambiguous and the definite. And, and, and he said that, that life is the dyads. The reality we know are the dyads working against the oneness working not against with against with you know it's very messy uh to somehow take us toward that now so it obviously as as time's gone on people have sort of gotten away from platonic idealism why do you think that it's still talked about so much do you think it's because of Aristotle? Do you think that's why we sort of remember some of this? I think partly, and I and I and I, I think partly it's it's still a, a reaction to the idea that there could be any realm of the ideal, a static realm. How how do how do souls get from there to here? If souls, and then there are all kinds of questions. If 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 souls are engaged in this of collision, this dyadic thing, well. Why are sometimes they not engaged in that? And how come sometimes we say a soul is not a body? Uh, and, and because even Plato was talking about that, um, when, when I think it was, he said something like, if you, um, you're burying my body, you're not burying me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Okay. So now we're into fast forwarding to, you know, dualism and, and the hundreds of years later, but he couldn't explain it all. Because it was an idea, but I think that's what people always chew on. It's a conflict. It's a conflict between what you say is your vision, uh, your way you've worked something out, but you didn't work it out entirely. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which is it's sort of an interesting conclusion for a guy who, um, you know, did like to sort of hedge his bets or, or say that you know be careful about the things he said yeah. to to put this statement out. But I think that um, I I don't think it's uncommon. Do you think that religious systems that have a deity are idealistic in nature necessarily? I don't. Well, not 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 the the standard, the the big three, <laughs> right? Um, I, I won't. I, I certainly won't try to overspeak about all religions. That would be ridiculous. But uh, in as much as there isn't a static oneness. I mean, if, if one pursues New Testament revela- revelations, 
there's stuff going on and there's going to be a Ragnarok for the North, whatever it is. It, it, it's not a place where you are totally assimilated into a oneness. <laughs> right. And I don't, the, the, not in Islam, not in, I mean, because they're all what happens when you go to heaven. If anything happens when you go to heaven, whatever heaven might be, that means that it's not the realm of oneness. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are all, do you think religions are always dualistic in nature? What do you mean by dualistic? So, in, that there's a separation between um, the body and, and the soul or the spirit. <sighs> I think the big three do. <laughs> Those are the ones I'm most familiar with. Right. You know, it's like Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Right? We've yeah. got Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Uh, <sighs> Don't you? I mean, it's, it's the experience, my experience of reading sacred texts, of even participating in the community to some extent, is that there's there's this body we're always supposed to be keeping down, and the appetites that we're supposed to be eschewing, and sort of and that Plato was talking about that. But but ultimately, we're trying to salvage our soul. Well, then the soul is part of the body, but the whole body doesn't go. Yeah, I'm, except in rapturous things. By the way, the word rapture was never in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> just saying that. So, so if your body's got, why would your body get picked up? If, and I'm not trashing anything. I'm just saying, you know, I'm asking a Socratic question. If your soul is different than your body, then why do you need your body if your soul is going to go? But if we tell people their soul when they die has already gone to heaven, why, you know, they're, so there's clearly a messy inconsistency in the religions themselves about this. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what I am thinking about is even going to what little I know about like the eastern some eastern religions and stuff. It seems like it, dualism is sort of a ne necessary aspect of it. And I think that maybe that's why Plato's idealism came into you know actually existed cuz like like we've talked about him, you know how we covered him biographically and the, the kind of person that he seems to be throughout what little we know about him to then come out and, and come up with idealism. It seems like there's, there's a, you know, a religious aspect to it that, that he couldn't quite shake or a spiritual ex uh, element to it that we feel constrained to somehow see as religious. Yeah. <laughs> see, uh, because we are our children of our, of our time right and so i it's it's certainly other other reality yeah. capital r reality as opposed to lowercase reality yeah it's interesting um do you think do you think hmm, do you think idealism still influences any philosophy today or do you think we've completely moved past it <sighs> I got to be careful about that. I, I think that scientific philosophy, the, the theorizing that looks for the grand theory of everything, which every metaphysician or 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 quantum physicist is not necessarily looking for, but some are, understandably. 
Um, that seems idealistic to me in the sense that there must be a place where if we could just reach that totality of understanding, we wouldn't have to work at it anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think that you know, we find out on the show every week, right? That we look at one word and it becomes much more messy and complicated and complex and even contradictory than we thought it was. Yeah. But there are people out there that are looking at and trying to come up with one theory that ties all of reality together. And you think, man, like, I, I don't know, you know, there's, there's nothing to indicate that this exists, but th it, there's this human desire to do it. And I think that that is idealism. I think that that, that sort of is the embodiment of, of that is this idea that, you know, despite how messy and complex our reality is, there's another reality essentially that, yeah. that, ties everything together that creates this this sense of oneness right the, did did we know about it before our souls came into this world there's a spiritual thing that is linked that that's plato's thing i don't know that right yeah yeah we would we would necessarily be drawn to going there because any of our traditions aren't about that mm -hmm. yeah so okay this one was fun i think we'll do aristotle we'll do socrates we'll we'll cover all these guys eventually um but it it was it was a fun look at it because I you know what we've talked about Plato throughout the show just been little snippets and I liked mm -hmm. that first half of it looking at what his life was like what his relationship with Socrates was like how his work yeah. sort of played at different aspects of 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 his philosophy that we don't we don't dive into in depth in the past so mm -hmm. until next time keep. Talking.